This is Defender Radio. I'm Michael Howie, and this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. Tigers are at risk of extinction around the globe. But in India, hard-fought conservation has seen the population double since 2006. While this is fantastic news, it does create new challenges to face, like how to manage poachers and negative encounters between tigers and animals kept as livestock and the people who live in the tiger's range. Artificial intelligence matched with innovative trail camera technology called TrailGuard AI by Nightjar may be the answer to not only protecting tigers in India, but other large carnivores around the world. Published in the October 2023 edition of Bioscience, Mitigating Human-Wildlife Conflict and Monitoring Endangered Tigers Using a Real Camera Time-Based Alert System outlines how the new tech works and what implications it may have beyond tigers in India. Lead author of this paper, Dr. Jeremy S. Dirtine, joins Defender Radio to share more about his experience working with AI and tigers, how we can see the solution be used in larger contexts, and what ethical issues need to be considered. Could you tell me a bit about yourself and how you got involved with, uh, um, you know, you, you were at a South Carolina university, I believe, and you mm-hmm. ended up uh, working in India with tigers. So I, I think there's an interesting little story there to get us started. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, thanks for having me um, on the podcast. Of course. Uh, yeah, so I was doing my PhD at Clemson University and working on a, a project actually based uh solely within South Carolina or mostly within South Carolina. And at Clemson is what's known as the uh, Tigers United University Consortium. So it's actually a consortium of four of the major tiger mascots universities of the South. Uh, sure. And as you can imagine, uh, you know, those mascots in Southern U.S., uh, schools are pretty important to them. Oh, yeah. So, so it included, uh, university of Missouri, Louisiana state, uh, Auburn and Clemson. Mm-hmm. And so the purpose of it was technology exchange. And they also brought students over from tiger range countries, uh, to get their PhDs in America. And so I was a part of the technology exchange. We were working with a group called resolve who created this trail guard AI camera. Mm-hmm. And I had, a lot of previous camera trap work. So I worked in Alaska during my master's and then I worked in California for the wildlife conservation society on recreation effects to wildlife. And so I was, you know, partly right place, right time, also right, you know, experience to uh, deploy this camera for the first time in India. And so we were able to work with our partners. Uh, We worked for the global tiger forum, which is an intergovernmental body for tiger conservation and the Wildlife Institute of India, and we were able to deploy these cameras for the first time in India. So that was my connection to it. Yeah, it's, it's a very, uh, uh, you know, the, the mascots are, that I do find that a little amusing, I'll admit, uh, but it's a very yeah. exciting uh, opportunity. And I, I I was not too familiar with the issues facing tigers. Uh, it, obviously, in North America, our biggest cats are about half the size of a yeah. tiger, uh, which I looked up and was wondering about and okay they're they're a lot bigger um but yes. 
one of the big issues I understand from my brief research is that wild tigers are considered uh, uh, a population growth success at this point due to a lot of effort from a lot of different folks, NGOs, governments, um, individuals within communities to protect them, to create habitat connectivity. But now you've got a rebounding population of an apex predator, which in itself creates potential issues, um, you know, regardless of your philosophical stance. It's it's changing the ecosystem again, and humans in this era don't really do great with apex predators, uh, based on my experience in Canada. So, yeah. what what kind of issues then are occurring within the communities uh, in India where uh, the tigers are coming back? Yeah, I mean it, it's it's an extremely complex situation, and uh, with the tigers coming back, there's a one of the biggest ones is uh, livestock kills. So a lot of the villagers are having their one or two cows that they might have or some goats uh, killed by tigers. And in some of the places that we were working, it was almost a daily occurrence where somebody's uh, livestock wow. was being taken. Um, and it's easy prey for the tigers too, right? They don't, the, the cattle don't have any, do not have any uh, prey response to the tigers um, or until they're, it's too late. And so, and, and the yeah. other issues that abound with that is that the people are usually there walking with the, often with the cows. And so then there can be collateral damage to uh, some of the villagers as well. And after yeah. that, then there can be, uh, it's thought that there's retribution killing because uh, if most of your livestock in the area are being killed by, by tigers or you feel threatened, um, there could be that type of uh, killing. And some of the, sometimes that's actually poisoning of the carcasses left after a tiger has killed a cow. Oh. Um, and so the forest rangers will monitor those with traditional camera traps as well. Uh, and then there's also poaching from outside groups. So it's a pretty amazing, uh, even though it, it took a lot to wrap my brain around the difference in the philosophy, a lot of the local Indian Indians that live around these tigers because there's still this reverence for them. And yeah. um, so my colleague, uh, Rashida Nagy, who's the, the co-author on this paper, she interviewed over 600 uh, people of t uh, some of the native tribes within our study area. And some of their, some of them lost their one goat that was uh, that they, that they needed for a wedding. And you know, they still did not blame the tiger for it, even though it delayed things for years. And um, yeah. so it's a it, it's an interesting balance between the reverence of the tigers, but then also the the economic needs and life needs. Absolutely. And we we actually at the Fur Bears did a survey on Canadian perception of wolves and had a very interesting sort of situation where most people across most demographics view wolves as iconic. They want to protect them. They want to see them succeed and thrive. But there is a conception that they're responsible for a lot of depredation of livestock, which statistically there is no evidence of. Mm. Um, and at that point, they go, well, it's OK to kill them then. Mm. And it's a very interesting divide as soon as there is an economic threat. Um, and again, in our case, uh, it's it's very hard to quantify because it's not tracked in any meaningful mm. way. But there there was that philosophical line in the sand. And it sounds like, you know, you're you're constantly kind of trying to find it in this this area because as you said there's some folks who 
even after they've lost something significant uh, to a tiger, they still want to see these animals protected. Yeah. They still want to see them succeed, which is remarkable, quite frankly, uh, and wonderful in a lot of ways. But as you said, you then have poachers and you have people who are going to go out and try and uh, uh, get the tiger that got their livestock, yeah. which creates other issues. Um, and it, let's talk a bit about then the, uh, the, the cameras, because right now, my understanding of cameras is they are growing as an effective means of research, period. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we've got, in addition to that, I remember reading a study about using DNA that's been floating about in the area effectively to try and track wild animal movements. We've got, uh, in Canada, we use fur catches, I know, right. uh, as a great way to track movement. But uh, these camera systems, particularly with various types of cellular activity or, or satellite technology, really do get you right into the habitat. Um, are you getting live feeds from this? Is this a, a system that's set up to trigger in a certain way? Or is that the, the role the AI now plays, the artificial intelligence processing? Yeah, so I guess going back, if you think of what traditional camera traps do right now is they take a photo and if it's connected to the cell, if it, it's triggered by heat and motion. And then if it is connected, and can transmit over the cellular, it's sending every photo that it takes to you if if you're using one of those. And so especially a lot of hunters out there that have used these um, and researchers too know that you can have thousands of, depending on the type of camera, thousands of false triggers. And so then you're getting these emails and notifications and all that. And so it becomes maybe an annoyance for a ranger if it becomes ineffective if they're trying to use it as a warning system because it's constantly Ooh. crying wolf that there's something might be happening and it's a false trigger. So this TrailGuard AI camera is pretty unique because it has what's known as AI on the edge, which is each camera has artificial intelligence program working in it. And mm -hmm. so it can decide, it can put a probability of a species, when it takes a picture, it can put a probability on that species being a species of interest. And so if it if it thinks it is a species of interest, then it'll send that photo to you with that probability uh, with other information. If not, it'll still store the photo, but it won't send it to you. Um, and so that's one of the bigger game. It's also extremely small. And so the receiver is separated. And so it can be very well camouflaged. So that's where it comes in very oh, cool. useful for poachers. It's really like the camera itself is about the size of a large, one of those large Sharpies, like extra large Sharpies. Um, and so it's meant to be up high. It can shoot kind of at a downward angle and the AI system will still work that way. And so ideally the less people know about it, the better, because then you can catch poachers. Uh, and and so, yeah, so our partners at Resolve were, it's, can now be used over cell, satellite connection as well. So, but we were testing it over cellular. That's incredible. And I imagine the, the artificial intelligence that has been sort of programmed into these is looking for specific variables and goes through sort of that algorithm list of uh, uh, dichotomy, dichotomous questions of, is it bigger than X? Is it longer than X? Is it... Uh, if you're using heat sourcing, does it register at this temperature and sort of then does AI's math magic, um, which, you know, I'm still working on long division. So we'll just presume that there's a bit of math going on. 
And um, from that, it then spits out the yes, probably your target or no, probably not your target. And yeah, like, is and, that more or less the well? And yeah. they actually worked. Uh, Resolve worked with a, a software company that developed, um, does this uh, image visioning, and they created these three D models, three D illustrations of the different uh, wildlife that they've deployed the cameras for oh, now. Cool. So the cool thing about that is, you know, we train AI off of photos that already exist or text that already exists if you're able to have a 3d model that's hyper realistic or realistic you can then put it within different types of environments you can put it in different lighting conditions and then you can do it from all different types of angles and so they're able to train it even before they're getting the photos that we got for the first time from tigers um so and uh yeah, so that that's how they're initially training the model, and then as they get more photos, they can train the AI model to be even more precise. And the real-time notification aspect of it is certainly, as you've noted, significant. What kind of applications, then, are you seeing it being used for with this project specifically? Um, you know, the, the headlines are about coexistence, mm-hmm. um, but you've also mentioned poaching. Are there, like, what are the applications being used for specifically in that way? So, uh, as first is a more of a first warning system. So some of these tigers, some of the cameras we're putting up were about a hundred meters from villages, uh, from village homes. And we were seeing tigers just walking right on pretty much on the other side of a small canal from, uh, these areas. And so these are going to rangers, uh, who can decide then if that tiger might be a threat and they need to intercede in some way. Um, and then also it's being used in other parks that have more of a poaching, uh, poaching issues, uh, because especially within a tiger reserve itself, there shouldn't be people just wandering around. So in those circumstances, they, they can tell, okay, that's a person that's not supposed to be there. That's not one of our guards. That's not one of our rangers. Uh, and so they can go and intercede because they're likely, uh, there for illicit reasons. Um, when it comes to the human wildlife conflict, which is what my project was focused initially mostly on, it becomes a lot more complex because that they might know that tiger is wandering there every day. Um, and so the ranger needs to make a call if they think it might be a problem or might be heading into the village itself. Mm-hmm. And then they would be able to utilize a range of options as you know it so is this a go in and try and divert or haze or use some kind of uh adversive method yeah. or is it go in and okay this is a repeat offender we need to have a broader conversation uh maybe even a landscape management solution i would imagine at times um yeah and and it, uh, and it's something- a with this new type of technology it's also and we hit on this on some of the paper is that it's opening a whole new realm of research from multiple angles, both social sciences and wildlife research and and, uh, traditional wildlife biology research, um, because it's including village, it's including the locals within active management uh, and trying to prevent conflict with them uh, too. So trying to preserve their livelihoods and obviously Mm -hmm. the conservation of the endangered species. Well, and it's interesting because traditionally wildlife management uh, uh, focuses on the the animals. Uh, In North America, we have the North American model of wildlife conservation, which is focused on game species almost exclusively. Um, And 
it it has a lot of gaps as a result. Whereas it sounds like this is a much more holistic look of humans are part of the ecosystem and the tigers are part of the ecosystem and we both need to be here. How are we going to make that work? As opposed to we need to do this to get the tigers to do why, for example. Yeah. Um, which again is a very, I don't know, it's, it's new to me, but I imagine that is perhaps not new to have that kind of a focus at this point. It's, I mean, it's definitely moved, moving more that way in several countries. It moved that way in India um, a little while ago where it, where it went to a recognition uh, of the need for community engagement for this as mm -hmm. uh, for the, for the long-term conservation, because it, in the early 2000s and late 90s, it was really an emergency for tigers. They were at their lowest levels. Yeah. Um, worldwide, there was somewhere around 3,000 or less in wild across wow. their entire range, which is from you know Western India to Malay into Malaysia. And there's only 3, 000, mm -hmm. less than 3,000 of them, where there was about 100,000 in 1900. Uh, so it took some major action and preservation of new areas to get them to rebound for the first time, increase and for the first time in 120 years. Um, but now there's, like we were saying, we were saying we we talked about that there's there's now success with the population rebounding, but that means more potential for conflict with humans. Um, um, no, it's it's really great though that there is this sort of adaptive view of it. Of okay, we have now protected the species to a point where recovery is possible. How do we ensure the long term sustainability of this population at this point? Now that the landscape is so much different with human impact than it was, like you said at the beginning of the twentieth uh, century, uh, it's it's almost like colonizing stuff turned out poorly. But we won't get into that. Um, Whole different podcast, right? <laughs> oh yeah. Um, so uh, talking about the technology, uh, ease of use comes up in the uh, the article in Bioscience. And I thought that was very interesting. Um, I, I grew up as a very techie person, uh, just enjoying playing with new things and seeing how they work. But I'm also very familiar with the large part of our population that struggles with batteries in a remote control. <laughs> um, so you note in this paper that that actually was an important aspect of the development of this was keeping it simple. Yeah, yes, absolutely. And, and that's, I mean, Dr. Dinnerstein, who's, this is his, uh, you know, he's seen this through from working with the inventor of the technology for the last seven years. He's formerly the global scientist for World Wildlife Fund for 20 years. Um, he knew that to, for this to be successful, and he really fused this as the ultimate piece of technology for conservation of endangered species, it needs to be useful for people from all uh, across the world and from all different educational backgrounds. Um, and, and so being able to bring it out of the box and pretty much just plug it in and give some instructions via, via an online, you know, platform or emails or something like that, uh, was really vital because, uh, a lot of the times the people that are asking for these cameras now are in near emergency situations for conservation of their species. And so they need something that's, you know, really applicable, useful, and then can be uh, used to, especially for the poaching situations to uh, used quite quickly to get into a camouflage uh, positioning. Yeah. And I, I note too, um, 
where a cell connection is available, this AI system can transmit on a single charge an average of about 2,300 JPEG images, text files containing metadata on battery levels, probability value of detected object, etc., and still allow for about 1,500 to 2,000 false trigger events recorded to an SD card but not transmitted. I, that alone is remarkable. I mean, I burn through eight batteries in a weekend trying to see how many raccoons are in my garden. Uh, yeah. on my $50 trail cam. So the, <laughs> clearly there has been some advancement of the technology, uh, perhaps out of my price range, but it has certainly advanced. Um, it, it, and well, Yeah, and they're trying to keep, and they're actually trying to, for at least for conservation organizations, trying to keep this about the same or even less than some of the nicer camera traps as wow. well. Um, and it looks like they're going to succeed. They, they've, they're working with a production company in India. And so most of the cameras are going to be produced in India for use in India and Southeast That's Asia. Awesome. Uh, and, and that was another aspect, like the battery, battery needs to last for a long periods of time because the less in poaching situations, the less you need to go out there and check it, the less it's going to get compromised. The location is going to get compromised or the less people need to know where it's at to work on it. Um, so that was a major aspect. Yeah. And looking at the, uh, the the paper, which will be linked in the show notes, uh, there is uh, figure four for folks who are looking mm -hmm. at it. Um, you scroll down and you see it It looks like what CSI was doing on TV several years uh, or more than several years ago. Wow. But a while ago. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the technology didn't really exist at the time, but it's it's framing, identifying person, 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 tiger, person, person. Like it's very just it's neat to look at, period. But it, I, I could imagine then for uh, law enforcement, for a local biologist, for everybody, how exciting it is to be able to get these alerts, like you said, sent to them immediately and then be able to act. What has the, the reception been like for the communities where this is being deployed? Uh, so far, there's been, I mean, a lot of interest, especially, you know, we were able to employ uh, one of the uh, villagers from the area. We asked uh, the village head if he could recommend somebody. And so we've been employing somebody for the last, uh, over a year. Um, and, mm -hmm. and so they, they continually ask to, for other, I mean, they've been asked for other, other deployments in the area and, uh, they've been working with the Rangers. They all have like WhatsApp groups that they, they are kind of, or the village head at least can talk with the Rangers. So for the, for the most part, it's been positive as we've seen, and there hasn't been any, um, damage to to the cameras either uh and which as excellent probably couldn't be said for putting up maybe a, where i used to work in colorado or so if <laughs> just putting up cameras with no uh, nothing on them oh yeah that's i i have spoken with enough researchers who have done uh more often urban related wildlife yeah. monitoring but they burn through cameras because they just get kicked they get spray painted they get stolen there's very little you can do about it because as you said, yeah. you don't want to be going to it frequently. You want to leave it and only get it when you need the data. Um, is there concern, uh, and, and this is um, something we talk a lot about at the Fur Bears when it comes to wildlife data, is mm. there a concern that this could be used for evil purposes? Could poachers get their hands on this and then make use of it? Or could those who otherwise maybe want to uh, um, affect or uh, exploit animals? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a question I get, uh, and Eric gets a lot, and they are very controlled with who's getting these cameras. I mean, they're very, you know, uh, to just conservation organizations right now, so that's all, uh, 
the cameras itself sending out the signal is very rapid. So it, it goes into a hibernation mode very quickly. So it's hard to detect it if you have a sort of electronic uh, monitoring. Um, and so it's, you know, part of it is, is the secrecy of where the cameras are being located. And then there's also, you have, you need to be working with, uh, resolve and the, and the group coming off of them to be able to be programming these, to be able to program these cameras for your operation and to get the notifications coming from them. So they've definitely thought about that. It's, def you know, it's definitely, a uh, uh, a concern because some of the technology is already there for poachers to use, but this is the next step. And so, uh, yeah, it's, with, it's been a slow, uh, rollout because of those, some of those concerns. It's always good to take your time and be a bit cautious with that kind of stuff. Uh, if anything, we have learned from Skynet not to rush new technology. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Now, I'm curious, long term, uh, do you think this can be applied? So, again, speaking in Canada, we, we do have large cats. They are not as large, but cougars in British Columbia, for example, um, they are very frequently killed by conservation services for approaching communities or for spending time in a community. And it is, I believe, based on the idea that there aren't very many options from their perspective to keep the cougar out of the community once they're in the community, there's not much to be done. So in that context, could a system like this then start being used in other, you know, for targeting other wildlife, for targeting communities in different places beyond these very direct conflict sites that we're talking about in India? Yeah, it, it, yes, it's definitely, it's definitely possible. And they already have models developed that pretty much can detect and send for any large felid. Um, and, and so I think already for mountain lions the the models are there to to deploy these cameras there's also the connection there de there's development now of connecting with um you know different technology to try to scare the animals away as well so if you mm. connect it with different types of uh, maybe speaker system that can play different things so that the animal doesn't get used to it or a flashing you know some sort of flashing or things like that uh, in the case of elephants, there's the famous that they really don't like bees. So if like, hooking up the camera to actually open bee boxes to, you know, in parts of Africa where they're destroying crops, where elephants are destroying crops, there's there's things like that. So uh, that's an extreme case. But it, with mountain lions, yeah, it's definitely it's uh, definitely there and possible. Yeah, and it, it's really cool to think of linking it up to the other systems, like you've said. Uh, I, I have looked at a lot of, I've not yet done any uh, uh, solid research or spoken to anyone on, but the uh, they're called Predator Eyes, I believe. It might be a trademarked one, but the concept of the flashing lights in an approximate distance of a predator's mm. eyes. So that, mm. and I don't know that that would work with an apex predator, but certainly with mesopredators and stuff yeah. and uh, livestock protection, it can be effective. Um, and I, I think, too, as well, uh, it gives a lot of research options, too. That'll be very exciting, as opposed to trapping, uh, uh, attaching a collar to or tagging and then releasing an animal. A system of these cameras would allow you effectively within a habitat to track those movements without ever needing to interact with an animal. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's definitely possible. And uh, part of mm. the issue with that is the the use of cameras on like you typically are putting the cameras on trails because that's increasing your ability to detect the animal right but 
it, yeah. it helps some of that coloring data can help with determining how wildlife are moving and the health of uh, health of the animals sometimes um, and overall reproduction of certain populations. So it, it definitely can take the place of parts of it. It can help with monitoring, especially the real-time aspect of it where you're not having to wait three months and then go through 2000, 3000 uh, camera yeah. trap images. Um, but it's a balance of the different technologies that we have, I think. Yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, always kind of growing and learning. Um, now, folks who want to learn more about this kind of stuff or who have an interest in it, and again, I'm thinking in some of the the uh, more urban areas where we're seeing encroachment from urban sprawl creating a, a draw for wildlife. So in North America, as you know, coyotes um, are spending more and more time in urban areas because we are taking away more and more habitats. Um, and they adapt quite quickly to urban areas. Um, right. I could see this being very valuable in some areas for something like that, where it's okay, we don't need to do anything per se, but it's good to know if animals are coming in on corridors. Or again, thinking I interviewed uh, Parks Canada folks a few years ago talking about wildlife passages they created, uh, the under highway corridors. And it was the exact thing of, well, we sat and we looked at about 8,000 images after like six months after it had all happened and the ability to get those notifications as you go and then see an alarming trend or see uh something again people in a wildlife passage uh greatly affects the dispersal of animals um it, it really just it creates opportunity to intervene before problems escalate i think is sort of what for me feels very exciting about it yeah, and we, uh, you know, I use we use some of the term, some terminology in the paper talking. Just this is somewhat of a paradigm shift of going from the passive use of this data to the active use of this data, mm. and and so we so often, like you said, are for things like wildlife corridors that are vitally important for connectivity, uh, wildlife connectivity. Um, having active information for that can quickly change how we're doing the management of species. And, mm -hmm. and if it's work, if, if you're waiting six months per se to, uh, to actually be analyzing any of these data, um, that could be well, like you're saying, well beyond the time that uh, is useful for actually either preserving that species in the area or capturing an offender um, that shouldn't be in a place that they're often going to. Yeah, it's 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 exciting uh, for you and for um, I mean, you you have noted that you are working on a uh, connectivity uh, pan connectivity uh, uh, sorry pan European connectivity project. Yes, I'll get there. Um, is this something that you see, though, I mean, having been involved in the project, do you see it rolling out, like, realistically into various other things? And as you're working on corridor connectivity and things like that, finding uses for it, um, or is it going to be one of, like you noted, very slow and steady release, limited to specific conservation units? Or is it going to be the next big thing that really does cause a paradigm shift in how we manage and how we research and so on? Uh, yes. No, uh, it's, it's going <laughs> to be. Um, no, I mean, I, I've, I mean, I've been involved working with this camera now for um, almost a little over two years, I guess. And mm -hmm. part of what kept me going excited about it was 
I saw the same vision that Dr. Dinnerstein saw in the ability for this camera to act really work, especially for protecting endangered species, both from a poaching yeah. standpoint and the human wildlife conflict standpoint. Um, when it comes to deployment, so like you said, I'm working, uh, I now live in Germany and I'm working on another postdoctoral uh, fellowship uh, look, uh, modeling ecological connectivity across Europe. Um, I, I think for the camera itself, it's still needed immediately in places that have some of these critically endangered apex apex species or other um, ungulate species that are endangered. Um, and typically that's not within you know North America or Europe. And so I, I imagine, uh, I know it's more work is happening in other places in Southeast Asia as well. Um, and it can also be used for other criminal activity as well, like illegal logging. Um, there's models mm -hmm. for logging trucks. Um, oh, and, cool. you know, so it's it can be used for those types of aspects, which also um, feeds criminal, organization, uh, criminal organizations as well. So um, uh, I, I think when it, you know, future deployments, it's still a little slow, uh, slow, but they're definitely picking up a lot. And especially in some of those areas that are definitely needed the most. Excellent. Uh, is there anything I didn't cover that you want to get in on this? Um, I guess, you know, some there's the ethics of it, um, which camera traps often, and I don't know if you want to hit on that at all. Um, oh, that's yeah. That's typically the comments that come up, and it's actually some Twitter pushback we got. Um, really? And and it's, you know, with, with camera traps and wildlife biology, it's something... There's been papers that have come out talking about the ethics of cameras in the woods and things mm -hmm. like and different types of monitoring uh, that we do. And there's definitely sensitivity and more sensitivity now being taken with the data that is being collected. This takes it to the next step um, where it's real time monitoring. And so I think that's where it's important that. The org, you know, the organization resolve is staying with the people that are working with these cameras. So, you know, in communication and in collaboration with whoever's deploying them, just because um, it, it's needed for a for a mission, but that community engagement needs to happen because, especially for human wildlife conflict, there's the ethics of having these in and around people, and yeah. um, and so it's an important conversation to have, uh, but. Uh, you know, that's why the data is being tightly controlled and only certain people are being able allowed to get those notifications. Um, but we'll see going going ahead how the conversation evolves. And that's fascinating as well, because right now or, or in the past few years, particularly during the pandemic, there is that influx of security footage, right? People getting their doorbells in urban areas and cameras and mm -hmm. all of this. You know, like I said, I've been uh, monitoring wildlife around my garden in the backyard so I can develop strategies to keep them from burying stuff among my vegetables. Um, but there are then conversations where a city might say, you can't have it on your front door because you are capturing people on the street, which is a violation of privacy um, or could be a violation of privacy. And it, it is an interesting ethical question. And the fun thing about ethics is there aren't right answers per se. Um, but it sounds to me like there is a lot of thought going into that already. And again, the sort of keeping it within the community, keeping the data within the server and those who have been given access to it very specifically will go a long way, I think, in protecting that. But it's a broad question uh, that I think has implication far outside of this application that we're all still struggling with as well. 
uh, living true. in a more surveilled nature. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. And uh, I'm hopeful then in the next few years as well, we'll hear more about how communities have adapted to it. Because I think that, you know, the species conservation is clearly and reduction of conflict are clearly the goals. But the sociological aspect of it is going to take time to play out. And that'll be a really interesting thing to look at is how did the communities adapt to this? Did it provide them a sense of security? And did it lead to a clear reduction in negative encounters? Yes, absolutely. And and then we we that's that's part of this with this pilot deploy this initial deployment. We created both uh, engagement programs for the rangers. So I was there uh, presenting on about connectivity and about how the camera works and about deployment of them. And then we also created a community engagement module um, that had multiple posters that were translated to talking about talking about tigers and interaction with uh, nature and then what the purpose of these cameras w were for and how the community could help uh, as well. And, uh, and so I really think that's, the team really thinks that's necessary to have this kind of holistic approach instead of just putting cameras out, you know, it's, it's really getting in front of those things and, and really including the community from the beginning is super important. I want to thank Dr. Dertine for his time and encourage everyone to check out his research and other writings on his website at conservationdirteen.com. Links to the study discussed and other articles are also available in the show notes for this episode in your podcast player or at DefenderRadio.com. I also want to thank you for listening and sharing this episode on your social media channels. It goes a long way in getting the word out, helping the show grow, and really just making the world a slightly better place. Remember to tag at Fur Bears or Defender Radio when you do share. Until next time, I'm Michael Howie, reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.